Galatians chapter 1 this morning. Galatians chapter number 1 would dismiss our children for our children's ministry. Uh, we're turning to Galatians chapter number 1. It's a blessing to have evangelist Bob Bosler here in the service this morning. And he'll be with us uh, in a few weeks to come for our war. A three-night evangelistic outreach to teenagers. And I had to say that because some of you are wondering what kind of war has come upon us. And hey, whether it's um, bloodshed um, because of a riot or bloodshed because of people getting saved, we're all in. And, um, but we're glad. We'll, you, you'll want to see this. Some of you will remember it a, a few years back. And, but it's going to begin. I really believe that we're at a time. It'll be a divine appointment. We're going to see God do some things here. But it's going to be, uh, and, and one of the reasons why I'm excited about it this time around is because of the journey we've been on on prayer. And I mentioned this morning, it was great. We got in after being in Wisconsin this week and got in just in time for the, well, actually a little bit later, uh, came in a little bit late to the prayer meeting, but it's just good to be a part of the prayer meeting. I, I needed it and um, we needed it, but because of the prayer journey, I believe it allows us a better a platform to see God work because when we talk about this matter, the three night evangelistic outreach to teenagers, you're talking about going up against the devil and you're talking about experiencing him work in ways that we wouldn't normally see him work. And it's very, very important. And Brother Bowser preaches every week uh, to a uh, really a hostile environment um, because of the opposition of Satan, not necessarily because of the opposition. Uh, necessarily of young people, but because Satan is a, so opposed to that. But he also experiences the delivering power of God and watches the gospel's power work right in the very midst of his preaching. And uh, it's going to be a great blessing. And we'll talk about that here in this morning's message because Paul deals with this in our journey going through the book of Galatians, talking about finding freedom. People are looking for freedom. But the problem is many are looking for freedom in the wrong place. It's like you want to find a good steak, you just don't go to McDonald's. It's not going to happen. You want to find good coffee, you don't go to Dunkin' Donuts. It just doesn't happen. You, you've got to know how to get to the right place. And uh, I'm not advertising for anybody. I'm just telling you where if you want to find good coffee, you want to find good steak, you want to find, you want to find freedom, you've got to get to the right person. And Paul's going to deal with this throughout the rest of the book of Galatians. We're in the third message here this morning. We'll finish out the chapter. But um, let's stand together and let's read our verse, verses for this. We'll begin in verse number 11. Paul writes, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past, my lifestyle in time past, in the Jews' religion. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion, Above many, my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately 
I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that which he persecuted us in time, times past, now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. Notice verse 24. And they glorified God, Paul says, in me. This morning I want us to look at this thought. The power of a changed life. The power of a changed life. You are your best argument for the gospel. Thank you. Please be seated. I'm grateful to pastor a church that's made up of people whose lives have truly been transformed and impacted by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in the gospel of Jesus Christ where we find freedom. Jesus said in John 8, 36, if the son makes you free, ye shall be free indeed. I like Psalm 146 and verse 7. It says, the Lord looseth the prisoners. This morning, Jesus not only wants to feed you through his word, but he wants to free you from this world. He wants you to be able to find freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can be free from sin. You can be free from bondage. And the message throughout the book of Galatians is finding freedom and liberty, not in legalism, which he's dealing with in the opening chapter, but also from license. You don't have to be bound up in legalism following a set of rules, nor do you have to try to go over to license so you can do whatever you want to do. Because those who do whatever they want to do, they're not finding happiness or joy. You say, if I only had the money that the rich have, well, the rich are committing suicide more than those who don't have money, percentage-wise. Those who are famous and have status, they're too taking their own lives. Their marriages aren't staying together. They don't have the inside freedom and liberty because what they have in material wealth cannot buy, cannot achieve what only Jesus can provide. So freedom is not found in a set of rules, nor is it found in you being selfish and having whatever you want to have. And Paul tells us in Galatians 5 and verse number 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What bondage, Paul? Well, he was talking about the Judaizers in chapter 1 we've looked at in the earlier two messages. 
having been set free from the law by the power of the gospel, these Galatians are being influenced by these who are known as Judaizers coming in and they're some kind of religion expert, so to speak. And, and they're saying that true salvation in Jesus Christ, yes, it does involve Jesus, but it also requires a little bit of religious ceremony, not much, but a little bit, and a little bit of a law, and a little bit of, uh, of rituals here, the law of Moses, and the, the law of Moses will help complete what Jesus started. And so they're teaching this, and, and Paul comes in and, and says, we've got a problem. Because man didn't come up with the gospel, and man has no right to tamper with the gospel. True salvation is not Jesus plus something else. The true gospel is only as good as what God defined it to be. And that is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. It's not Jesus plus the law. It's not Jesus plus plus church membership. It's not Jesus plus baptism. It's not Jesus plus catechism. It's not Jesus plus communion. It's not Jesus plus the Ten Commandments. It's not Jesus plus speaking in tongues. It is only Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus. Salvation is not a plan. It's a person of Jesus Christ. Now, as Paul attempts to stop them from heading back into a legalism and finding themselves bound by a yoke of rules and rituals and, and going back to some kind of a system, he is putting the focus on the power of the gospel. He's talking about the power of the word of God, the power of the gospel. He says in verse number six, remember we talked about the gospel last week. He speaks at the end of verse six, the grace of Christ unto another gospel. He talks about another verse seven, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And, and then in verse number eight, he talks about if any preach um, uh, another gospel, verse number nine, uh, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, that is, then the true gospel, which is what? Jesus plus nothing. The true gospel is Jesus, Jesus only. He said, but if anybody preaches anything else, he says, let them be accursed. Very strong terminology. Why? Because we don't have a right to tamper with it. And so then beginning in verse 11, Paul then refers to the power of his changed life. See, Paul describes the profound change that the gospel made in his life. His autobiography. His autobiography is one of the great arguments as to the power of of the gospel. We'll hear in the war when it's here almost each night. I guess each night of the war before the evangelist Bonsler preaches, he'll have someone give a testimony. And what they're doing is they're saying what is about to be preached, what we're here for, it works. It works not only in our life, 
it will work in your life. And the apostle Paul is giving his autobiography and he's testifying to the power of the gospel. Paul knows that his transformed life is one of the most compelling cases that he can make for the truth of the gospel. Our changed life is one of the best arguments for the truth of the gospel. It is one of the most powerful apologetics. See, nothing argues more forcefully for the reality of the gospel than the fact that you can say, look what it's done to me. See, it's not religion that changes somebody's life. It's a relationship with the powerful gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Our life changed by the gospel is one of the best arguments for the truth of the gospel. You, if your life has been saved and transformed, it's one of the best arguments, the power of a changed life. Won't you see three things that are emphasized here that I want to emphasize in this lengthy passage? Number one, I want us to once again take a look at the source of the gospel. The source of the gospel. In verse 11 and 12, but I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Paul says it was not preached coming from man. It wasn't given to us from man. So you say, all right, Paul, if the gospel you preach is not according to man, it didn't come from man. Where did you get it from? And Paul answers in verse number 12, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it by, the, by man, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Learn this about the gospel. The way to God doesn't come from man, but it did come from God to man. No one gets their way to God from man. It must be from God. See, man's idea of the gospel is the way of Cain. Remember Cain and Abel? Jude 11 speaks of the way of Cain. Remember Cain and Abel, the first uh, children of Adam and Eve, and Cain, he brought a sacrifice to God. And it was the very best that he had to offer. He brought the, the fruit of his labor. He tilled the ground. He was an agricultural, he was a, a, a farmer, and he brought the very best that he had. And Cain's way says, I deserve entrance into heaven. I have earned forgiveness. I merit the favor of God. Cain, why should you be saved? Because of all that I've done for God. And do you know that the Bible says God rejected Cain's offering and therefore rejected Cain? Why? Because Cain was saying that I can come to God on my terms. I, if I ask you this morning, and I am asking you this morning, are you 100% certain that all of your sins are forgiven, that you have eternal life? And if you say, well, I'm a member of a church, I say, you're on your way to hell. Jesus wants to do something about it. Because church membership doesn't save anybody. 
But gospel membership into the family of God does. You need to recognize if God rejected Cain's way, he'll reject your way and my way if it's different than the way, the truth, and the life. But God's idea of the gospel is the way of Abel. See, Abel was saying by giving a bloody sacrifice, we know the Messiah is coming. The Messiah will come and he will be the substitute for our sins. He will shed his blood. And so Abel brings a a lamb sacrifice. And what he's saying is, I cannot work my way to heaven. I cannot earn forgiveness. It's based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Abel's way is the blood-stained way. That's why we sing about the cross, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. Why? Because it's the blood-stained way. Cain's way is the way of works. Abel's way is the way of grace. Now, whenever you mention Adam and Eve's son, I remember talking to a man one time and I mentioned this and he needed to get saved and mentioned to him Adam and Eve's um, children, Cain and Abel, and talked about how Cain tried to do the very best he could and God rejected it because the very best that we can do will never be enough. The very best, God says, the very best is what Jesus did for us on the cross and so therefore we're to accept it and take it as a gift. And this man that I was trying to to help him see his need of salvation, he said, um, I want to ask you a question to you, preacher. How did Cain get his wife? Now, his need was that of salvation. I said, I don't mind talking to you about how Cain got his wife, but I want you to see your greatest need is that of first getting saved. I said, sir, you won't be the first man to go to hell by being interested in another man's wife, so you better pay attention. The gospel was received by Paul having been revealed by God. That's what he's saying in verse 12. He mentions the word, notice in verse 12, by the revelation of Jesus. That word revelation we find in the book of Revelation, chapter number 1 and verse 1. It's the word that's used to describe the revealing of a masterpiece of art. People would gather for the revealing of a masterpiece and it may be covered by some cloth. And and at a certain point they'd pull that that veil off and there'd be an unveiling of the masterpiece. When John wrote about the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, and when Paul writes it here in Galatians 1 and verse number 12, they're speaking about the unveiling, not of a masterpiece, but the unveiling of the master who brings peace. See, that's the power of a changed life. We see it in its source of the gospel. It's received by Paul after being revealed by God. But the power of a changed life is also seen, number two, in the confrontation of the gospel. And we see this beginning in verse 13. Paul says, For ye have heard of my conversation in time past. And notice the religion, the Jews' religion. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. 
the confrontation of the gospel. The gospel is confrontational. And it works just fine. Sometimes people say, well, I'm not very confrontational. Well, the gospel is. Just give the gospel. The gospel itself is confronting. It's confronting people that without Jesus Christ, without the gospel, there's no freedom. There's no hope. Remember the MasterCard, I believe it was, commercial? Is that what it was? Don't leave home without it. American Express. Hey, you better not leave this earthly home without the gospel. The confrontation of the gospel, two things made it highly unlikely that the Apostle Paul would ever get saved. Humanly impossible for the Apostle Paul to get saved. And we see it in, in two ways here he mentions. One is in his persecution of the church. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He says in verse 13, he was a devout Jew. To elaborate, he was a Pharisee. And he says in verse number 14 that the Jewish religion he was involved in, he exceeded in the zeal beyond anybody else. In other words, Paul is saying, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. I was so extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers because he was involved in religion. He was a Pharisee. His Pharisaic beliefs made him a persecutor of the Christian faith. He's not just opposed to the Christian faith, but he aggressively opposed it to the point of violence. In the book of Acts, Luke, the writer, he says in chapter 8 and verse 3, for Saul, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and and inhaling men and women and committed them to prison. Saul the Pharisee in chapter 9 and verse 1 of Acts is breathing out threatenings and slaughter. I'm telling you, this is the man who gets saved. His life is transformed. And he says the, one of the greatest arguments to the power of the gospel is his changed life. And here's the man who just years before he was threatening to shut down the entire church of the living God in his own pursuit, in his estimation. And he's killing people. He's destroying people. This was the intensity of his opposition. Paul was obviously going to be a tough nut to crack because he was an excellent Pharisee. But not just his persecution of the church, but we also see the confrontation of the gospel and that changes his life. But you have to see what it overcame. It, over, it overcame Paul's dedication. Notice again verse 14, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals. See, an excellent Pharisee does not make a good disciple of Jesus. Not because there's anything particularly unique about a Pharisee, but because excellent Pharisees would be something like an excellent musician, an excellent businessman, an excellent mother, an excellent athlete. In other words, they have much 
and their thinking to take pride in. And Paul's zeal, Paul's dedication, it revealed a fundamental problem in Paul that exists in each and every one of us. His pride. His pride. And Paul took pride in his pride. See, pride or what Paul calls in Philippians 3, confidence in his flesh. It's what blinds men and women to their need of Christ. It's not just at salvation, but it's even after salvation. People are so blind to their need. Blind to the point, I'm, I'm not going to go any further. This is as far as I go. I'm saved, and I, and I feel like I've got a good grasp. I know the Bible. I've memorized much of it. I'm not going any further. I'm not going to bow when he says bow. I'm not going to kneel. I'll do it on my own terms. Pride. Amen. Oh, I, I'm not going to do this. I'm not taking this course. I'm not going through this. I'm not going to do this. Pride. pride. And Paul is telling us, that pride is what would keep a person from ever getting saved. And so why would you embrace and tolerate what puts people in hell? Why would you, as the family of God member, why would you tolerate that which God says he resists, he rejects, he, he, he actually acts out against? Why would we tolerate that? Pride. When we've put our confidence in our own background, in our status, or our achievements, or our observation, or our own pursuit, or in our own awakening, you're going to find it impossible to find Jesus. Because you don't find Jesus in your pride. You find him where he's always mentioned you'd be found in coming to him. And you don't come to him and, and pride. That's why Jesus says that unless we receive the kingdom like a little child, we cannot enter into it. Pride is insurmountable. Left to ourselves, we can't climb over ourselves to get to Christ. But the good news is this, God's salvation, it can reach down to wherever you are when you in your need recognize I need Jesus. And when he transforms our life against all odds, as he did Paul, it proves to us and everyone else the truth that Paul himself knew so well that he told us in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. And yet with every attempt to silence the gospel, Paul the persecutor, he ended up spreading the gospel. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4 says, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. We're seeing the same thing today in parts of the world. Wherever you find the greatest terrorism and the greatest um, pursuit to stamp out Christianity, whether it be China or Iran or Iraq or Afghanistan, we're finding the gospel keeps spreading. Why? Because there's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And don't get the idea that the church of Jesus Christ is losing the war against the world. Don't get the idea that the church of Jesus Christ is losing the war even against the flesh. No, no. Don't ever get the idea that the church is losing the war against the devil. Matthew 16, 18 says, The gates of hell shall not 
prevail against it, namely the church. See, gates, when he mentions the gates of hell, gates are not the weapons of offense. Gates are used for defense. As Christians, as the church, we're not holding on to the, the banner, hold the fort. No, we're, we're singing onward, Christian soldiers going as to war. Onward, why? Because we are not on the defense, we're on the offense. Why? Because we're on the gospel side, we're on the winning side. You see, God has a specific strategy when he saves this seemingly unsavable. There is no one that is unsavable. But from a human standpoint, Paul would have been the most unlikely person to get saved. But God, when he saves somebody, he wants to show his patience, his mercy, his grace, and his goodness so that somebody else can say, if that person can get saved, then certainly God can have mercy on me and God can save even me. Don't lose confidence in the power of God to change lives. Never give up hope that God can change even the staunchest opponents of Christianity. Don't forget that even the most hardened of atheists is never more than one decision away from conversion. Thus, should God ever choose to, uh, to get a hold of the heart. And it is God's will that all men be saved. But if God's people were to choose to intercede on behalf of those who are lost, like many a times in our prayer meetings, in our prayer meetings, I think of Miss Angie Easterwood, God put on her heart. And every time I hear her say the words in our prayer meeting, Lord, would you save Nancy Pelosi? Oh, there's such liberty that comes because we know that God put that there. God is the one who has been out to seek and to save those who are lost. And we sometimes look and say, well, God will save somebody sitting in here, but he's not going to save someone of that caliber. No, if God can save you, God can save anybody. If God can save me, God can save anybody. Could you imagine hearing the testimony of someone like Charlie Sheen getting saved or Hugo Chavez getting saved or, or, or some uh, Bill Meyer getting saved. Someone of such uh, staunch atheism and hatred towards Christianity. I'm going to tell you, that's the apostle Paul. That's who Paul was. And the gospel confronted him and it showed him his great need and it showed him the great answer. And if the gospel's power can save Paul, it can save anybody. The power of the gospel is seen in the source of the gospel, Jesus Christ. It is found in the confrontation of the gospel. But then last, I want you to see the transformation of the gospel. Notice in verse 15, Paul writes, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. That's who he was. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. What's he talking about there? We'll get into this later. But he, there he's talking about his discipleship course that he went through with Jesus. 
And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. And notice in verse 23, but they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed. And Paul says, here's the transformation of the gospel. The Bible says, Paul says, and they glorified God in me. Amen. When the change in our life is so real that others see it, Amen. they say so. This is what happened in Paul's case. He's careful to remind the Galatians that this didn't come from man. This transformation didn't happen because he just stumbled upon a good Bible study. And if you can find that book, that book will change your life. He said, no, I came across the right man, the man, Jesus Christ. And he says he was so busy advancing in Judaism, that's religion, and wreaking havoc in the church. But notice verse 15 again. But it, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his, what's the word? Grace. We sometimes talk about finding God. But the truth is that we're found by God. The apostle Paul didn't find God as much as God found him and revealed his son to him. That's why we say, don't miss the fact that regardless of why you think you're here, you're here because God is looking for you. The same was true for the Galatians themselves. And Paul reminds them of that in chapter four and verse number nine. He says, but now after that, ye have known God or rather are known of God. And the same is true of us. If we found Jesus Christ, the reality is he first found us. The gospel's transforming power, three things about it. It brings pleasure to God. In verse 15, and notice what it says. You see it? Verse 15, but when it, what's the word? All right, let's try it again. Verse 15, but when it pleased God. Did you know that you can please God this morning? You say, I'm trying to please him every day. You can't please God by what you do. No, you can't please God by what you do. Do you know how you please God? Accepting what he's done. Most of the time we think about God bringing pleasure to us. But here the Bible teaches you can bring pleasure to God. The night I received Jesus Christ into my life, it brought me peace and it brought pleasure to God. Amen. Let me tell you something today. God was pleased to reveal Jesus to you as well. Paul is speaking here in verse 15 of the grace of God. We've talked about grace. Grace is supernatural enabling. We, we talked about this matter of if a person Highway patrolman pulls over a person because of speeding, and and you recognize, yes, I, I'm guilty. I broke the law, and instead of giving you a ticket, 
That's mercy. He doesn't give you what you deserve. Instead, he pulls out of his wallet and hands you $1,000. That's grace. I should have Luigi give this illustration. He could do it a whole lot better. And, um, but I don't want to put any attention on him. He can tell you about that another time here. But it, it's, it, it's true. That, and that's just a simple monetary, simple thing. But that's what the Bible's teaching us. The law says for all have sin. All of us have sin and all of us have fallen short and, and have come short of meeting God's standard to get into God's heaven and to receive God's gift of eternal life and relationship with him. And so the Bible tells us rather when you and I get saved, when you and I take the gift of Jesus Christ, you take it, you don't earn it. If you earn it, it's not a gift, but you take it by faith. And when you take it by faith, he doesn't, he, he removes from you the penalty of hell. He doesn't write you the ticket that says you have to pay this fine. He doesn't write you the ticket of hell. When you and I get saved, we never have to fear going to hell. I will never have to go to hell. I cannot go to hell. Why? Because Jesus is my Savior. Jesus lives within. And Jesus will never go to hell. Nor will he ever send me to hell. That's mercy. But he didn't just show me mercy and not give me the penalty that I deserve. But he shows me supernatural enabling grace. Grace that allows me to, to take the gift. But grace that gives me what I never deserve. And that is eternal life. Eternal life, eternal life with him and forgiveness of all my sins. All my sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about in verse 15. The grace of God. Nothing else can explain who Paul is apart from the grace of Almighty God. When the change in our life comes, it makes it clear to everyone that it's by the grace of God that we are what we are. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, excuse me, 15 and verse number eight, he thought of himself, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. He says, I'm not even meet to be called an apostle in verse number nine because I persecuted the church of God. Yet in his own sense of unworthiness that enabled him to grasp the grace of God for what it truly is and caused him to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, the supernatural enabling of God, which was with me. I'm saying only the grace of God can make sense of who we are if our life has been changed. Only grace explains it. But not only the, um, the pleasure of God, when you and I trust Jesus Christ and allow the grace of God to work, it brings pleasure to God. But also we see the plan of God in verse 15. It says, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. The plan of God. Now, I don't know what the liberal pro-choice or Planned Parenthood advocates would say to the Apostle Paul when he says that God separated me from my mother's womb. Today, we've got a lot of greedy physicians bent on separating baby, babies prematurely from their mother's womb. And yet, at the same time, we have 
folks like Canaan Baptist Church and other churches and pregnancy centers who are fighting for the lives of hundreds and thousands of babies every year. By the way, every time you're giving here to the, the cause of, of the church, you're giving to the cause of the gospel that says that Jesus Christ is life and he came to give life. And there's only one where death originates from and it's the deceiver, the liar, the devil himself. He's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. Someone asks, why are you pro-life? Because God is. God is. And by the way, every time we come to Jesus, every time you meet with God, you're meeting with the one who wants to revive our life. You put it down, God had a plan for Paul. From the time he was in his mother's womb, God said to Paul, I had a plan for you. And I'll tell you something else. God has a plan for every single person from the very time that they're in their mother's womb, actually before then. But he's saying it just from a human standpoint, from when you were conceived, God had a special, specific plan for your life. The problem is you hijacked it. The good news is the gospel can get you back on course. You'll never find God's plan nor fulfill his plan without a relationship with Jesus Christ. God's plan for your life, it starts and stays with Jesus. Yes, the transformation of the gospel, it brings pleasure to God. It reminds us of the plan that God has for our life from before the time we were born. But it all is for one purpose. Notice in verse 24 again. Would you read verse 24 with me out loud? Ready? And they glorified God in me. The transformation of the gospel is for this one purpose. The praise of God. The praise of God. Every time a person turns to Jesus in salvation, praise goes up to God. Praise from the person who gets saved. Praise from the person saved. Praise from those who've prayed for those getting saved. Praise from those who've told them about Jesus getting saved. We've had the the privilege of talking, meeting with the Wilsons and finding out they go out on Friday nights, I think it is, giving the gospel. There's no bigger business in all the world than to be a part of the gospel declaration business because it brings praise and glory To God. Coming to know Jesus and then living for Jesus Christ brings praise to Almighty God. And yet there are so many seemingly unhappy saints today. D.O. Moody said, Some people have just enough religion to make them miserable. I believe I've met a few of them over the years. It's time that some of you come out of your religion and step into a relationship with God. I've come across people who have gotten into this kind of an awakening that, that has occurred, but they're never going to get out of their bondage. In fact, they're going to go deeper into bondage until they come out of their self and humble that which is in opposition to Almighty God. That relationship can only start and stay with Jesus Christ. That's the life-changing 
power of the gospel, soul winning, sin forgiving power of the gospel. Again, I like Psalm 146 verse four that I mentioned at the beginning. The Lord looseth the prisoners. Is there a prisoner here of sin? Prisoner here of your own self? Prisoner here of the system of the world? God wants to deliver you, loosen you, free you. The power of the gospel is seen in changed and fulfilled lives. Sometimes, sometimes we domesticate the gospel. You know what I mean by that? Sometimes we domesticate it and we forget its power. Listen, the gospel is not a flannel graph illustration to make children uh, happy. It's the power of God to transform the life of even the most hardened criminals and it can even change the softest of children. You see, the gospel is not a mere formula of how we get saved. No, it's divine power that brings about salvation from the, the hardest of criminals to the nicest of individuals, but all who have fallen short and are guilty of being sinners against a holy God. The gospel is not simply a message about how to get right with God. No, it's the very presence of Jesus himself enabling us to be right with God and to live as a disciple right before God. The gospel is not a quaint story about who Jesus was and what he did. No, it's a declaration about who Jesus is right now, the way, the truth, and the life. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. A man sat in my office some time back telling me about a big empty hole that was in his life as far back as he could remember. And he said, Pastor, I've been a member of a church throughout my adult life. I've been a good man, but it wasn't until just a few weeks before my big empty hole was filled and I repented of my sin. I put my faith in Jesus and I'm a changed man. Are you listening? Jesus can fill your big empty hole as well. And that hole is not Jesus plus something. It's Jesus and only Jesus. Let me conclude with this. In the 18th century, there was a pastor who was a man who understood the power of the gospel and the grace of God. John Newton was the author of that timeless hymn, Amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Those lyrics seem to tell each of our stories better than sometimes we ourselves could. But before John Newton was the great Christian hymn writer, he was a very wicked man. He was a slave traitor. He was a rebel against God. Yet the mercy of God intervened in his life. The Lord Jesus Christ met John Newton in his need. Jesus got in Newton's way like he did Saul. And ultimately saved John Newton to himself just like he did Saul of Tarsus. In a letter to a friend, Newton described his own conversion in ways that Similar to that of the Apostle Paul's, listen to what he says. I, though long a ringleader in blasphemy and wickedness, was spared. And though banished into the wilds of Africa, where I was the sport, yea, the pity of slaves. 
I was by a series of providences, little less than miraculously recovered from that house of bondage, and at length appointed to preach the faith I had long labored to destroy. John Newton, shortly before his death, he composed his own epitaph. It reads something like the Apostle Paul might have written. He wanted it inscribed on plain marble with no other monument or inscription, lest anything distract from the grace of God that made him what he was. It reads, and you can see it on the screen, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa was. By the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. John Newton's life was powerful, a powerful argument for the truth and the power of the gospel. The single best argument to point someone to Jesus is to say, look what he did for me. Would you stand with me, please? Our heads bowed and eyes closed.